Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. My name is Sandy Mullen, and I'm Senior Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies, which is a global public health organization. The Public Health Power Hour is a live discussion about how public health, which is hosted on Twitter Spaces, by the way, um, covers topics like vaccine equity and maternal health, commercial determinants of health, and more. If you've missed an episode, find us on your favorite podcasting platform by searching for Public Health Power Hour. At Vital Strategies, we are working to reimagine public health. That means everything that surrounds you, the built and natural environment, policies and culture, all contribute to making good health possible. We believe that public health can be better, bold, and stronger. And this year, we're dedicating the Power Hour to discussions with thought leaders, experts, and advocates who are focused on the how. We're very excited about today's Power Hour because we're joined by the journalist and writer, Linda Villarosa, to discuss her new book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, in which she argues that any effort to close the gap in health outcomes must also address the structural racism that underpins the U.S. healthcare system. We are delighted and honored that Linda will be joined in conversation with Dr. Mary Bassett, the New York State Commissioner of Health, who will be discussing why Black Americans suffer worse health outcomes than their white counterparts. Uh, so our discussions uh, in the future will be guided by you, our listeners. We look forward to hearing your feedback on our shows or ideas about future discussions. And you can tweet us or tag the handle VitalStrat or email us at PowerHour at vitalstrategies.org. So let me do a brief introduction to our guests. Uh, first, Linda is a Linda Villarosa is an award-winning journalist. She's an author, editor, novelist, and educator whose work focuses on race, inequality, and health. Her latest book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, was published in June of this year. She's also contributed to the groundbreaking 1619 Project and a writer for the New York Times Magazine. Warm welcome to you, Linda. And Dr. Mary Bassett is the New York State Commissioner of Health, where she leads the New York State Department of Health. Dr. Bassett has previously served as director of the Francois Xavier Bacno Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard, and is FXB professor of the practice of health and human rights in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And she has a long, illustrious career in tackling these sorts of issues. She's also served as commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Welcome, Dr. Bassett. So Linda, let's just get started by um, asking you first to share your definition of systemic racism in public health. And what are some of the outcomes of this bias for Black people in America? 
Well, first, I'm really happy to be here. Good to be in conversation with you, Sandy, and your dog, and um, Dr. Bassett, who is a role model and a thought leader for me and my reporting. Well, um, I think it's important to differentiate racism from racism. So one thing is individuals who have some kind of bias or prejudice toward people, which is different from structural racism, which means that it's baked into the system. So the kind of one of the most obvious ones is um, segregation in America and, you know, redlining, something that has destroyed Black communities um, around the country and left them in worse shape. So it's harder to be healthy. Um, another one is discrimination in the healthcare system itself, which is well evidenced and studied in America, beginning way back from in 1619 and through um, the present, and how that affects African Americans and other people of color, but Black people specifically, is we end up with worse health outcomes, beginning with in birth, with infant mortality rates that are long standing much higher and all the way to the end of life with um, lower life expectancy. And too often we're blamed for our own health problems and less well um, talked about is the effect of discrimination baked into institutions and structures of our country. Yeah, very important points. And, And Dr. Bassett, I'd love you to add your perspective and how you see these trends playing out in public health. Uh, Thanks very much. And like uh, Linda, I'd like to thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to read Linda's work. And Linda, you really excel at at turning um, what can be sort of jargon um, into plain language. And I I think that the description that you've given uh, of what we mean by structural racism and how it extends beyond uh, the uh, individual prejudices um, to ways in which our institutions uh, uh, across a whole range of institutions, often with the support of government, have reinforced the notion uh, that uh, people of color, in particular people of African descent, um, are inferior. Uh, a notion that is tied to the the ideology of white supremacy. So I agree with you. We see it play out in housing. We see it play out in healthcare. We see it play out in our criminal legal system. We see it play out in what types of environments people live in and are exposed to. Um, So uh, it it certainly is not uh, a matter simply of individuals. Um, uh, It's baked in, as you say. Thank you, Dr. Bassett. And, and yet, there, there are people who are sometimes a long time coming to this recognition of, of these issues. And, and Linda, I was particularly struck in reading your book by your personal journey from writing for Essence Magazine as a self-care um, health reporter to one where you sort of really took a harder look at these structural issues. Can you just share with the audience the, uh, some of those that, that aspects of that journey? Well, um, I grew up in a family where education was everything. So we were taught and, you know, in some ways, I believe in, I'm a college professor, in the importance of education, educating yourself, um, being empowered. And that was sort of the mantra I grew up with. So when I got to Essence in the late 1980s, I fit in really well because that was the magazine's mantra. I was the health editor and my job was to lift the sort of the health outcomes of the race 
one by one, one reader by one reader. So my whole goal was self-health is what we called it, or I called it. And to really say, do everything right. Drink a lot of water, exercise, take care of yourself, take care of other people in your family, go to the doctor. If you're pregnant, really do everything right. And I think I, you know, in many ways, I believe in that, but little by little, I, it began to chip away to say, wait a minute, this is not all there is. And my first big eye-opening was going to public health school. I didn't know the difference between, you know, public health and regular health. It took taking classes in public health to open my eyes. I think my eyes were further opened when I met Dr. Harold Freeman. And he talked about the health of men in Harlem in a study um, in the New England Journal of Medicine in the early 90s. And it was like men in Harlem have worse health than men in Bangladesh. And I remember asking him, thinking, oh, this is simply because of poverty. That's what I thought. And I grilled him and I kept saying, and he said, no, if you think that it's only because of poverty, not race in and of itself, you're going to um, go in the wrong direction. So I think those two, those were my early, you know, I began to shift, but it took me a while. And I mean, I still, you know, think of the ways that I was wrong in the past. And I'm, you know, honestly, I'm still learning about this. Well, I, I really appreciate you telling that story because it also shows how evolution is possible even in the, the, the minds and hearts of those who are deep thinkers about these issues. And, and, and Dr. Bassett, I know that Dr. Freeman had a very big influence on your life as well. Perhaps you could talk about your work at Harlem Hospital with him. Oh, sure. Uh, and actually, as it happens, um, I, I just had a visit with, the, the, uh, uh, with Dr. Colin McCord, Coke McCord, uh, we all know him as, who uh, wrote this article with uh, with Dr. Freeman all, all these many years ago. Uh, Dr. Freeman and, and Dr. McCord were both in the Department of Surgery at Harlem Hospital, which I always found really interesting because uh, we don't often think of surgeons as public health thinkers. But in fact, well, they're known as literally cutting to the heart of things. And that's what they did in this paper. Uh, which they showed, showed based on data in 1980. Um, so this was before HIV, um, that the chances that a man in central Harlem um, would live uh, as the, that a man in central Harlem was less likely to live as long to the age of 65 um, as a man in Bangladesh, uh, which was and remains one of the poorest countries in the world. So I did my medical training at Harlem Hospital. Um, this article came out in the 1990s and at the time that I was already living in Zimbabwe. Um, but it, it, it resonated with what I'd, with what I'd seen um, at Harlem Hospital, uh, where to this day I, I've never had sicker patients. And that experience was really what set me on to thinking about the importance of what goes on outside of individual health care to establishing health. At the time, Harlem was uh, undergoing enormous housing abandonment. Uh, the, uh, uh, this was pre-gentrification of Harlem. Um, and uh, it was obvious that my patients um, had many challenges in their everyday lives to being healthy that we couldn't address uh, when they got to the hospital. 
Uh, so it was really my experience training in internal medicine at Harlem Hospital, interacting with giants uh, like uh, like um, Gerald Thompson and Harold Freeman, um, that I came to see the importance of public health, what Linda's just referenced, uh, that people need healthy everyday lives in order to remain healthy, uh, that they need access to health care, yes, uh, but uh, health care is for fixing up uh, many of the things that could have been prevented by healthy everyday lives, what we now call the social determinants of health. I wanted to add that um, when I, I spent the day shadowing Dr. Freeman and um, one of his patients was really instrumental, like meeting her. And she had, she was living in Harlem. She worked downtown. So she, I think the appointment was in the afternoon. So she had to get off work early and um, she came, she was really well-dressed. Um, but when he was seeing her for um, breast cancer check and when she took down her shirt, she had clearly really advanced breast cancer. And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, that only happens to people who don't have health care. But this woman or health mm -hmm. insurance, she mm -hmm. had health insurance. She had access to Dr. Freeman. But what she what her strain was, was child care. And so she was what she was saying was, I didn't come sooner because I was really afraid of leaving, you know, my child of having dying of breast cancer and leaving my child without anyone to take care of him. And I thought, wow, she already fast forwarded to that, which kept her from accessing health care. So it wasn't a lack of health insurance or the ability to pay, but it was fear, which is different. Yeah, no, I, this is in your really excellent book, uh, Linda, the, the, recounting this tale. And it really speaks to the, the, the fact that many people are fearful um, that they won't get uh, decent treatment uh, when they enter, enter the healthcare delivery system. Uh, and, and, and that reflects structural racism. I, I'd like to think that we at Harlem Hospital were delivering the best possible care. Certainly, Dr. Freeman is was a leader in uh, breast cancer treatment. But of course, uh, being fearful of the outcome, uncertain of your ability to handle serious illness, um, is, uh, was part of this woman's um, you know, reluctance to begin uh, a journey of getting treatment. And tragically, it reduced her chances of survival. But it wasn't just in her yeah, in head. I, I, I really, if, maybe Linda, you could talk about the, um, you know, the Institute of Medicine report. You know, it's not wasn't just in her head that she might not encounter dignified and respectful or even high quality treatment in the healthcare delivery system. Well, you know, what's interesting is when people talk about that, they sort of say, well, look at Tuskegee. Look what happened to black people in Tuskegee by the public health system um, that did, left um, syphilis untreated for years and years as a way to look at the progress of the disease in black men in Alabama. And I say, well, wait a minute. I don't think this is about Tuskegee. Um, this is about what happened to you yesterday in the healthcare system or what you've heard of or what happened to a family member. Um, and what the Institute of Medicine report said was it looked at hundreds of other stu of studies um, of people of color, especially black people in the system, and it found unequal treatment. Um, and, you know, I do think that it's about institutional racism and structural racism. But I remember one of the studies was about um, 
uh, diabetes treatment and amputation. And it found that even when other values were matched, like your um, the advancement of your disease and your ability to pay, Black people still had their legs cut off, much or feet cut off much more often than white people. And that struck me. I thought somebody is making some kind of unequal decision here. But that study was foundational and remains foundational at looking at um, unequal treatment in the healthcare system itself. That's right. Thank you both for that great, great discussion. I, I wanted to um, just sort of come back to uh, this issue that you've written about, and I've heard you speak about before, Linda, on race correction and how that has also been another uh, another example of of structural racism built into medical care. And so, could you talk about that and and, and this notion that 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 less lung capacity in, in black people uh, is one of the presumptions that have been made in medical care uh, and other examples of that sort? Well, um, for the 1619 Project, we were all, you know, for me specifically in medicine, but all of us were told to look at something that happened during the enslavement, 250 years of slavery in America, and find a through line to today. And so I was looking at instances of, you know, what happened to enslaved people during slavery in medicine, and then what's the through line to today? But when I first did it, I was so interested in the history, I forgot the through line to today. So I got sent back to the drawing board, had to do a complete revision. And my editor said, choose one or two instances. And one of the ones that I chose was lung function. And the idea that Black people in the, you know, during slavery had lower lung capacity, which meant, and the, the note, the underlying falsehood was that by doing... <laughs> exercise, working out in the fields, we could strengthen our lungs. And this uh, notion may have come from Thomas Jefferson, but the person who latched onto it hardest was this man, Samuel Cartwright, who um, really had some other outrageous um, ideas and, you know, was really invested in keeping the institution of slavery alive. So the through, and he also um, created this um, instrument called the spirometer, which measured lung function. And in that early spirometer was built in a race correction that assumed that Black people had lower lung function. Fast forwarding to today, many modern spirometers still have um, that race correction built in. And so still using that faulty, you know, assumption based on racism and white supremacy to um, measure incorrectly because there is no <laughs> race uh, difference in black and white people in lung function, but it still is baked into this machine. Yeah. I mean, just so listeners understand what that means in this barometer, which is just a little gadget that you can blow into that shows whether, um, you know, we use it in people who have asthma, for example, to see uh, how much lung uh, capacity they have. There's literally a switch, a little lever that you move, uh, you know, to one position if the person is white and another if the person is black. And, and I saw this. Spirometers uh, that I used on patients had these little clicks. And it's not only that. There were adjustments for renal function. Um, and uh, more recently, we've heard how um, uh, head injuries among, um, among black athletes have been uh, downgraded because of adjustments to cognitive function that was all, were also made on a racial basis so that 
uh, loss of cognitive function uh, started from a lower baseline for black athletes. Um, You know, these um, all are rooted in this notion that black peoples have different bodies, Uh, a, a notion that persists to this day. We even saw it trotted out during COVID. And, um, and of course, it, it has its roots in, in, um, in these racist ideas like this Samuel Cartwright, who we've mentioned. These were not kooks uh, who came up with these things. This was the heart of medicine. Uh, when I questioned the lung volume uh, belief as a medical student, I was assured that I was incorrect and that there was tons of evidence. And I'm very grateful to the scholars who have rebutted it. Well, I'm sure that will be shocking to many to many listeners. I, I want to come back to uh, this, the, the disrespectful care that you alluded to earlier. Both of you have alluded to earlier, and mm-hmm. I recall. I think something you mentioned in your book, Linda, a, a, a quote by David Williams or a study by David Williams, saying that uh, black people received poor service in re- in in the medical care system than in restaurants or stores. And that, that really stuck out in my mind. And then you sort of talk about as, as a part of that, this notion of weathering, um, and, and which is, uh, as you define it, a high effort coping for fighting racism. But can you talk about weathering? Um, weathering is the idea and it's, um, a phrase was coined by Dr. Arlene Geronimus, who is a researcher and scientist at the university of Michigan. And uh, what she found was that because of sort of coping against discrimination, both the kind of everyday microaggressions plus harder core discrimination by the police in housing and employment causes a kind of premature aging of the body. And how she studied it was in infant mortality. And she first looked at it where she found that in white women, um, the healthiest babies were born sort of in the 20s and 30s. But in black women, the healthier babies were um, for teenagers, were um, teen pregnant women. And um, she was, of course, derided a lot because, you know, she was accused of supporting teen pregnancy in black girls. But what she really found, her un- underlying finding was that because of dealing with racism, it weathered the black women's bodies so that um, as we got older, we got um, this kind of premature aging that affected our um, pregnancies and childbirth. And it very interesting. And I like that she's a scientist and a poet. Um, weathering refers to the way a storm weathers a house. It knocks off the shingles. It chips the pane. It breaks the windows but also how people and communities weather a storm the way a house doesn't fall down. And that speaks to kinship and community and love and support and neighborhoods, and which I really like that. But um, now, Dr. Geronimus, where she was attacked in the past, she has certainly much more um, valued her thinking. And um, she's, in fact, writing a book. So I'm really interested. I think it comes out next year about weathering. And I'm curious mm-hmm. about, you know, like what her book says and how it's received. Dr. Bassett, do you want to make any comments? Well, I, it's interesting, uh, Linda. I, I have a little bit of a different reaction to Dr. Geronimus's work, which I has been very important. The impact of premature mortality really can't be uh, overestimated. Uh, I, I do agree that the metaphor of weathering is effective, 
Uh, but it's also a natural process, weathering in the natural world, as you point out, uh, houses, weather. Uh, but what's happening to black women is not natural. And it's not related to just sort of being buffeted by storms. It's related to a system that we've been talking about today um, that it can be described, uh, which is the responsibility of, of institutions and people. Uh, and not a natural phenomenon. So I, I think it's really important that we stick to the idea that the excess mortality that we see in communities of color and in particular in African Americans is socially produced and is not uh, a natural process. For me, that's always an important frame because it means we can change it. And it is, uh, it is something that that is in our hands to change. Um, so those are my two concerns about the way in which Dr. Geronimus frames her work, uh, the image of weathering and, and the concept of, of agency, that there, that there are processes that are under, um, under human control uh, that are not natural. Uh, the fact that we haven't had a single year when People of African descent haven't been sicker and died younger than people who are classified as white uh, is social in origin. Uh, and it says more about our society than it does about the weather. Um, I Thank probably you. think I don't <laughs> want to speak to, for Arlene, but I think she would agree with you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, let's turn to another sort of area of focus uh, in your book, Linda, but but also uh, I've heard Dr. Bassett speak about this a lot, and you kind of referred to it earlier in terms of some of the structural reasons uh, why Black people are sicker, and that is where you live and why that matters. And you spoke about redlining before. Maybe you could just sort of expand on that a bit and, and talk about even some of the, the things that people don't necessarily think about, like the impact of climate change on Black people and how that is increasingly becoming um, a, a clear other uh, detriment of, of environmental issues. But perhaps you could just begin a conversation about that. Well, I think personally, it has affected me in two ways. Um, first is that my mother is from the Inglewood community in Chicago, and people there live to age 60 and nine miles north um, in Streeterville, which is a you know white area and I guess what you'd call the loop downtown, people live to age 90. And um, I, my family came from Mississippi. My grandparents came from Mississippi to Chicago, which was a kind of promised land and made, uh, you know, were really hard working and trying to make a life for themselves, but were um, prevented from really thriving as most of the people in these communities were by uh, policies, including redlining, but also contract buying. So in my um, in in those times, you could not buy, if you were black, you could not buy a home. You would have to outright. You couldn't get a mortgage. You'd have to buy it on a contract, and that meant it was never secure. You could never really gain wealth in the same way. You couldn't pass the house down, and um, a home is often the biggest form of wealth that left that community without being able to. Um, sort of get the people in the community not being able to really accumulate wealth that is connected often with health. When my mom and I went back to that community in early 2020, we were surprised by 
you know, all the landmarks that my mother remembered, including the house she lived in when she was when she was first married to my father was, you know, it had police tape around it. The windows were boarded. We went to her elementary school where Gwendolyn Brooks also went to elementary school where she went to school um, with other, you know, Lorraine Hansberry and that school was boarded up. It was just an empty shell. And so if a community is by institutions, including, you know, government sanction is left to, um, you know, be destroyed like that, then it's hard to be healthy. And um, the other way is my partner is from Port Arthur, Texas, which is the site of a really huge, maybe the largest refinery. So with climate change, the storms are worse. The Black people live our fence line communities, which means they live closest to the refinery. So I remember one of the last big storms, we had given my niece uh, a computer for college and she was walking through the water, escaping the storm close to the refinery where the water was poisoned. And I just remember she was holding that computer over her head to keep mm. it from getting wet. And I just thought, oh, this is what, you know, <laughs> fence line communities affected by the worsening storms of climate change and here are black people right in the middle of it. Right. Right. There, there's evidence that redline communities, for example, and this was 90 years ago that uh, government set in motion uh, what became known as redlining, uh, that these communities up to this day have less tree cover, for example. So it is, uh, as, as Linda, as you're saying, it, it's not only the sort of social space, whether there are parks, whether there's street lighting, whether there are supermarkets, um, what kind of safety people feel. Uh, it, it's also the actual physical community. Uh, that these are often areas that are more vulnerable to climate change and are more likely to be exposed to toxic dumps. And uh, so it's both. Uh, place is a really important organizing um, idea for how people are harmed collectively. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. such great points and, and maybe an area that needs a lot more thought and, 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 and work yeah. to sort of bring this to the fore and to get more people involved in that, yeah. to engage I'm, in this, in this fight. I'm sitting right now in, in Empire Plaza in Albany, uh, New York, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, was uh, created by eminent domain uh, in a redlined community of Albany. I mean, redlining was, was, uh, put in motion in over 200 cities in the United States and, and it created a platform for disinvestment, the type of disinvestment that could, you know, lead to a vibrant public school being, um, being boarded up when you went to see it again. Linda, that was a really shocking story in your book. I, 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 uh, like you, I guess, thought maybe you were going to go back and find a gentrified community Instead, you found one that had been subject to relentless disinvestment. Also, what I noticed is I was interviewing um, my friend Eric Whitaker, and I remember he had he's a physician, and he had opened a clinic for black men in um, that same community. And when I re-interviewed him, I said, what happened to that clinic? You were so excited about that. And he said, it was too hard to run the clinic because what was not needed was the clinic wasn't needed. People, I mean, the clinic became kind of like a community center um, and a place where people went. But what he realized was there was so much um, crumbling around the clinic that he switched his thinking to be more about how can we build 
you know, the economic structures and how can we build wealth in the community to increase health? Um, because this clinic wasn't enough. Mm. I think that that's a, it's really good that you're mentioning wealth and you mention it in your book as well. Uh, because the wealth gap in the um, by race, race ethnicity in the United States, particularly the black white wealth gap, is so much bigger than the income gap. Uh, so you know the black middle class, for example, is in a far more precarious position um, than than the white middle class, and it it's tied to things like the inability to establish home ownership and more. Yes, thank you. That's uh... Again, I think a lot of people will be surprised at the roots of this institutional racism or this structural racism, and so, so much of it is owing to deliberate geographical decisions <laughs> to cut through communities that, that have left so many um, segregated and without the resources that, that are needed. I, I want to turn a little bit to, to, to mental health, because it's another area that you write about in your in your book, uh, Linda, and and. I'd, I'd love you to do a little bit of reflection on what the consequences are to mental health and, and addressing some of the, the, the mental illness that, that stems from some of these problems that we've just been describing. And, and the pandemic might be another lens through which to look at this, since we're still obviously suffering not just the physical consequences, but the mental health consequences of, of the last few years. And maybe you could just comment on that as well. I think that one of the ways that we suffer from is from a lack of sort of mental health services for us as black people. There are so few um, mental health care providers who are people of color, but especially black. So once you, um, you know, seek help, um, if you want to seek help, it's hard to find someone. Um, and it's gotten especially hard during the pandemic. I think the other thing is the the intersection of mental health and policing. And um, what I covered in my book was a very sad um, story of a friend of mine's brother who was dealing with bipolar disorder, who could really, I mean, really tried hard to get help, but instead was arrested, was eventually killed by the police. And um, I, I just think of, I know his mother really well. And when she was talking about it, she, she was always afraid that something would happen to him. Um, and, you know, she was in a support group with white parents and you could see the white parents weren't worried about their kids being killed because they were mentally ill. Um, and she was always worried about that happening with her son. And I was very, very struck by, you know, the pain of not being able to get the treatment, but then getting in trouble, partially because of myths and stereotypes about us that already exist and are worsened once you have mental health. The idea that mm. instead of getting care and treatment, we need policing and we're dangerous. And I think that's one of the myths that impedes in us getting proper treatment and help. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I think this is a really important point because so many of the, um, of the lethal encounters between individuals and police have the added um, element of mental health. Uh, and people talk about the, the need for more mental health services and that's, that's true. Uh, but th the reason that these interactions turn lethal has a lot to do with racism. And the notion of danger that is, uh, you know, seems to be part of the enduring societal image of, of particularly black men uh, that, that, that mean that police officers, um, you know, uh, 
use lethal force when it's it's not not at all clear that it was necessary. That was a very moving part of of that of your book, and it speaks to all of the you know the complexity of of who should be responding to to mental health uh, uh, crises, yeah. and and how often should should that person be carrying a gun. Yeah, th- thank you so much for that. I, I, I know that we, we have about 20 minutes left, and I want to turn to some of the ways in which we can address some of these issues. Obviously, um, the need to, to uh, improve access to healthy food and education and safety and better neighborhoods, and, and so many, so many um, of those structural issues are obviously going to be challenging for a long time to come, and we must keep an eye on those. But I'm wondering about some of the things that, for example, Dr. Bassett, you did when you were at the New York City Department of Health, and which Linda uh, refers to uh, a few times in her book, which is to really uh, mandate implicit bias training among staff. And perhaps you could talk about that. I know that was the um, that that you wrote about that for the New England Journal of Medicine, but but can you describe to listeners what that is, and also if you could comment on some of the ways in which this notion of DEI diversity, equity, inclusion is for some organizations a bit too much like checking a box rather than really taking on these implicit mm-hmm. biases much more deeply. So so that's a that's a lot for you to for me to throw at you. But could you talk about that? And Linda, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Sure. And I and I, I want to thank uh, Linda for for mentioning this effort uh, at the at the New York City Health Department. And I actually noticed that among our listeners are some of the people who work with me. I had the the great uh, asset of younger people uh, who were committed to to turning the New York City Health Department into an anti-racist institution. Um, so we did a lot of different things, but among them was create a an internal uh, training unit uh, and one that by the time I left the health department had trained something like a quarter of all the staff, uh, and we. Uh, we wanted people to, um, you know, to understand how implicit bias works. And we did have make the uh, training included implicit bias training. And it also included a lot of history, a lot of the history, uh, Linda, that you review in your book, um, which I, I want to uh, just um, give a shout out to again, it's incredibly readable uh, it's not dense academic prose, and um, it, it has all the data and the stories that sort of anchor the data and make the, make make the data real. Uh, so we also included a lot of history um, because my experience is that many people uh, just don't know um, uh, enough history about uh, what what happened in the United States, what the impact of having a a country that was founded with enslaved labor. And uh, we made this a requirement. We re- it was written into the tasks and standards uh, that people had to had to learn about health equity and, and about um, the impact of structural racism. Um, so uh, so it was the training. Um, it was also a call to each part of the department to take a racial equity lens to their work 
and see what they could do to um, to Im- improve the department's um, efforts to reduce the very large gaps in health that are also present in New York City. And I, I have to say that this was probably the most rewarding part of my tenure as a health commissioner and and that it also has endured. I was really, I really felt rewarded that uh, Dave Chokshi, who recently stepped down as health commissioner at the end of de Blasio's term, said that when he talked to the department about becoming commissioner, uh, one of the key things that he was asked by members of the department was, would he continue uh, the work tackling racism? And the uh, neighborhood health offices, uh, Dr. Vassan, the current commissioner, uh, he's described as a, a network for equity. And I believe that this is how we make institutional change, uh, when we embed it uh, and when we convince people that they become better at their jobs because uh, they understand the impact of racism and understand how it, uh, you know racist thinking has limited their views, has created literal blind spots. So uh, I want to thank you, Linda, again for, for highlighting it. I want to give a shout out to Aletha Maybank, um, who you also mentioned in the book, who was the first uh, um, deputy commissioner to establish what was then called the Center for Health Equity and, and several of the people who are listening to us today. Uh, uh, This was work that reflected a real team effort uh, and work that I think has become um, has become ongoing at at the New York City Department of Health and I'm working on here at the state. Um, Dr. Bassett, what kind of pushback did you get? Um, among because there's that's a huge that's a lot of people. So were there some people who weren't on board? Oh, you're kidding me, of course. <laughs> uh, well, I, I do remember, uh, you know, I also assembled the most um, uh, racially and ethnically diverse um, team, leadership team in the department's history. Uh, the leadership was more uh, than half non-white uh, for the first time in the history of the New York City Health Department. And, and I remember being asked by a member of the leadership team um, whether, you know, I was considering quality uh, as I recruited new people to join the leadership team, many of whom uh, were Black, Latino, or Asian. And, um, yeah, I would consider that pushback. I think I was assisted by current events. Remember Ferguson and those images of what looked like warfare on the streets of a U.S. city tanks and so on, um, made, um, meant that people in the leadership team felt that they could understand what was going on in Ferguson uh, because of the, um, the, the way in which I had you know, formed the department and was introducing trainings and educational sessions. Um, but you know, I would say that probably to this day, if you look at public health, the vast majority continue to believe that if people acted better and did what we told them, that they would be healthier, and that's what the problem is. Uh, but we achieved a critical mass that understood uh, that the problems were deeper than that. So we de- we got pushback. Uh, I-, I have to say that the um, that the city hall, uh, you know, gave gave me green light for this, and, and that, of course, is important. That the political leadership. Um, you know, they, they saw that article in the New England Journal before it was published. Um, 
and, and no one tried to stop me. As you point out in the book, uh, we uh, we call on we called in that article for members of the medical profession to commit themselves to talking about racism and undoing racism. We we did use a lot of outside help. Um, we. Uh, you know, we, we got outside consultants. You mentioned one of them that did training with the senior leadership, two-day training. That was a big commitment to take the whole senior leadership and commit them to two days of, of uh, training. Um, that was undoing racism. And then there were other groups that, um, that uh, also um, assisted the department in this work. Uh, but the most important thing was uh, the department embracing it. Um, at least uh, a fair share of the leadership. So I, I don't want your, to say your, that it was easy. By the way, I do I do think that people thought I was obsessed, and uh, that I you know and I you know this is personal for me. I'm I'm mixed race. My parents' marriage uh, was illegal in my father's home state of Virginia uh, until 1967. As you know, that's not that long ago. The, the state of Virginia fought to the Supreme Court uh, the right to ban interracial marriages in, uh, in their state. Uh, so I, 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 you know, this has you know been a, you know personal for me as well. Um, my mother defied her family when she married my father. She they they had very little to do with us during my growing up years. Something I'm thankful did end, but. You know, so uh, I, I think that people knowing my personal history thought that I was somehow obsessed. I don't know, Linda, do you get that people think that you're obsessed with racism because oh, you've yeah. made it a f- oh, <laughs> Yes. Definitely. And they're like, please <laughs> stop talking about it. I will, I, I'll stop talking about it when it goes away. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. Uh, and it will never be fast. I mean, we're talking about centuries. Uh, it many of these notions are so long-standing that they seem natural. It seems natural to a physician to think that a black person has a different body. Um, uh, so yes, <laughs> it was not easy, but I, I really do um, do think that. Um, one of these days, I have to get with Dr. Maybank and, and some of the others who pioneered this work. We have to write it up. <laughs> but thank you yeah. for putting it on, on the pages of your book. Well, I think it's important, you know, to, to lift up, you know, that your work and the, you know, work in other places around the country to model for other people who have, you know, because I get a lot when I'm talking. It's like, what can we do? And people get, you know, start to get really depressed and tired. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> you can do these things here. Here's a model for you. Here's a model in the New York City um, Department of Health. And so, you know, thank you for what you did and your leadership. Yeah. And, and I will say that Linda really calls that out as one of the things that states can do around the country. I think you call out California as having moved forward and, and taken up the gauntlet that you, uh, that you essentially passed on to them. Uh, Dr. Bassett, I'm just, you know, in, in the last few minutes of our conversation, uh, what else, what else can we be doing um, in public health to address some of these structural issues, knowing that it will take decades and more uh, to, to really get ahead? But, but what else should we be doing? Well, I feel like we can't end this conversation, Linda, without asking you to talk a little bit about reproductive health. We've lost Roe. Um, and I, I think that a, a you have a, a lot in, in your book about both infant and maternal mortality 
um, I, I feel like we have to, we have to, I have to ask you to talk about it if you could. Well, it was interesting because when the Dobbs decision went down, I was at the Aspen um, Ideas Festival, which was really fun and really wonderful. And we were talking about ideas and all of a sudden this thing happened. So I got put on a panel with a, a bunch of lawyers, which was, you know, good. And they were talking about legal remedies up to what can we do? Who are we going to sue? Which organization? And I'm getting more and more upset because we weren't talking about you know, sort of what is going to happen in the state in, in Mississippi, specifically where this decision went down, but in other Southern states that have trigger laws, because in those states, there's high levels of infant mortality, high levels of maternal mortality, low levels of child health, high levels of um, child death. And we weren't talking about that. We weren't talking about what is going to happen. And I remember this um, woman from West Virginia said, well, we're going to lose our last um, reproductive um, health clinic probably tomorrow. And so we're starting to, we're thinking of forming an underground network um, to, you know, of abortion providers and other kinds of reproductive health. And then she said, is that a good idea? And then everyone passed over it. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> that is a good idea. That is your only, you know, that may be your only choice for a while. And um, what I was steering people to is as this kind of the next steps in this cannot be just about abortion, cannot be talking about reproductive rights <laughs> as about abortion, but about reproductive justice and bodily autonomy. So that means we should have the right to um, have a child if we want to. In other words, you know, sort of that is to guard against eugenics and forced sterilization that I've certainly written about. We should have the right to not have a child if um, if that's your choice. And if you choose to have a child, then um, people should have the right to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment. And if the sort of other side, so to speak, cared about that part, then they would be less obsessed with abortion and ending it and more obsessed with taking care of children and people in the poorest states in the South where this is going to hit the hardest. Right. Well, uh, also, obviously, I, I work in a government agency, and I, I think it's very important that um, states like New York, which through uh, both Democratic and Republican administrations have always protected, has always protected women's right to, to choose and um, has always, you know, had uh, before uh, Roe had uh, uh, abortion available to women who, who needed it. Uh, there was a time in New York State when uh, 400,000 abortions were done in a year, and a, a huge share of them were people traveling from the rest, from elsewhere in the country. But obviously, for the people that you're thinking about in Mississippi, the ability to get to New York is very limited. Uh, so we have been, you know, talking about the ways in which to protect medical abortion, which now accounts for about half, uh, the way to expand uh, reproductive health services here in in New York State. Uh, and should there be, and there already is uh, anecdotal evidence that there is more demand um, and, and I absolutely agree that we're going to have to protect access to contraception and uh, access to women's ability to control their uh, autonomy. Uh, but I absolutely think that we have to stand by the fact that abortion is not a dirty word, that it remains 
vaccines uh, uh, should remain and uh, a safe and available a procedure um, for as many women who 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 want it. And um, so there, there's a clear role for govern uh, for government here. Uh, but I'm very grateful for activists and advocates who are, you know, going to take matters into their own hands. And um, we we uh, we really um, we really are facing a turn back the clock moment, uh, one that I have to be frank, I never expected to see. Um, so, um, you know, I, I remain uh, committed to data in terms of thinking about what we should be doing. Um, the data that Linda compiles so effectively in, in her book, Under the Skin, um, is, um, you know, is only there if we collect it. And we saw during COVID uh, resistance on the part of the federal government to releasing race, ethnic specific data on COVID mortality. We need these data in order to track these uh, unequal outcomes that uh, are reflect unfairness. So uh, having data um, th- that is complete, timely, and available to people remains a key issue. And, you know, people don't like to pay for it, to be honest with you. It's kind of boring surveillance. Uh, and additionally, we have to always look at how well we're doing at reaching the communities that have been burdened by bad policies um, and particular communities of color. I promised myself that I will never talk about the impact on black people without saying something about the indigenous who have had, uh, you know, their their worlds destroyed by um, by uh, the colonial, um, the European colonial project, and who continue to have some of the very worst health data in the nation. Uh, so I'll stop there. I think we have, uh, I, I could listen to you, Linda, and you, Sandy, forever, uh, but I feel like we should give the last <laughs> word to, the, to both of you. Well, I, I was going to call, thank you so much. This has been such a rich discussion. I, I wanted to add that, that we need data and we need stories. And, and, and Linda does a brilliant job of telling stories putting names to people I didn't even know about. And I really encourage everybody to read her book, learn about forced sterilization through the story of the Ralph sisters, Minnie Lee and Mary Alice, who Linda's still in touch with. But their story was just beyond heartbreaking. And and to this day, they're still withstanding the pain and suffering of having been, uh, of having undergone uh, forced sterilization. So I think stories are also important in really bringing us to, to bringing much more poignancy to, to what needs to be done and to keep us all, keep us all focused. And, and Dr. Bassett, your, um, your, I think, call to, to, to folks, both in your implicit bias training and in, and in the body of your work, which is to not shy away from using the word racism. It's still uh, something that I think people shy away from uh, because of what you were discussing before about how some people are just sick and tired of hearing about it. But I think I think you make the point that we have to keep our focus on, on this issue um, as, as folks in public health and in healthcare, certainly, but and to try to bring along all these other um, systems and structures that, that, that are contributing to this. So, Linda, I'd like to give you the last word. Um, uh, I can't pitch for your book more than Dr. Bassett has in this conversation, but uh, please take the last word and anything else you want people to know about your book or, or about the work that you're doing. I wanted to add that um, up until 
probably near the first printing, the subhead of the book, it was under the skin, race, inequality, and the health of our nation. And I think, Mary, I reread your 2015 call to action. And I'm like, why am I not saying racism? And at first I thought, well, may, I don't want to accuse people. I don't want people to feel bad. And then I, I reread your work and it's like, it's not about individuals. It is about structures. It is about institutions. And we changed the subhead at the last minute. I called my editor and I said, you know, I was really strong about it. And she said, well, okay, it's your cover. You do what you want. Um, and I feel, I feel good about that. I feel good. And, you know, I, I think I did shy away from it, but I changed. And in my own evolution, I'm, you know, and I, I think when COVID happened, it also helped, you know, in the most terrible way, cement what I had already known and what many of us had already known. And the last thing I want to say is there, I used to be one of the only journalists doing this kind of work around public health, around racial inequality. Um, and now there are many, there are a new generation and they're very good with data who are coming up and who are in fellowship programs and who are in journalism training programs to do this kind of intersection of social and political justice and health and public health. And I'm really proud of um, them and for kind of ushering in this new era. Well, we're so thankful to you, Linda, for writing this book and for really being such an important voice over the last few decades on, on, uh, on, on issues that are of importance to, to race and health. And, and Dr. Bassett, it's, it's always an honor to, to hear you and to hear all of the, the great wisdom that you have uh, amassed over the years, both through your work through and through, your, um, through, through both of your personal stories. So uh, I'll just end by thanking you both enormously and thanking our listeners for being a part of this uh, conversation. And I hope that you'll tune into future Public Health uh, Power Hour uh, conversations. And thank you all very much. Have a great rest of the day. Great evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at Vital Strat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.